All right, and we are rolling once again. This is Lee Grant. We are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And joining me once again is the inimitable, incomparable, often imitated, never duplicated, Kevin Pendergrass. Kevin, how's life? Man, some fancy words, brother. I like that. Yeah. Hey, are you rocking that New Year's resolution yet? Because that's what a lot of people are doing. And people tend to lean into their New Year's resolution. Some stay with it, some fall off the wagon. But ultimately, at this time of year, the first of the year, one thing that's on everyone's mind is change. They either want to change their physique, they want to change their habits, they want to change this or change that. And that kind of leans into what we're going to discuss today. On this podcast, over and over and over again, you make the comment, and I have made the comment, whenever I began changing, whenever I changed on this, and whenever Mm -hmm. we changed. I mean, the very last episode we did on the year in review, we talked about positions that we had changed on even over the course of the year. And some people have asked the question, what is it that led you to change on this? People have asked me that. I know you've had people ask you that. And a lot of times we focus on doctrinal topics. We focus on doctrinal issues. You know, what did you believe about X, Y, or Z? And what do you believe about that now? And one of the things that I came to realize having a conversation with a friend not long ago is that the issue for me started with changing on certain doctrinal things, but ultimately the issue that underlied and undergirded everything was the framework through which the scriptures were being approached. And what that ultimately led to were questions about unity and Christian unity with one another, fellowship issues, you know, whatever you want to call it. And with the conversations you and I have had before, that was the really the driving force behind the change that you experienced, as well as the change that I experienced, even though they happened, you know, you and I weren't talking to each other whenever we went through this. We, you know, we had kind of parted ways and our paths had diverged, but it's really interesting that this is really the fundamental framework upon which all of that change that you've experienced and I've experienced has emanated from. Yeah. Every church denomination congregation has what they believe are non-negotiable essential beliefs. And churches refer to them by different names. Some call them salvation issues, heaven or hell issues, fellowship issues, core gospel issues. I've even heard it called closed hand issues. Whatever you want to call them, the point is that all denominations, all Christian churches have beliefs they feel are essential to Christianity. And and I was no exception to that. So in my life, I was taught growing up by my mentor and many others. And I say that because this was not the philosophy that my mother and my father taught me. Uh, my mom and dad, they they did not teach me that I had to have complete uniformity with everybody, but that is what the message that I was hearing at church, uh, the, the particular congregation in which I was growing up, that's, that's what I heard all the time, is we have to mark false teachers. And a false teacher was anybody who taught something differently than we did. And there are so many examples of this that I want to talk about in this episode so that people understand exactly what we're referring to. So I really tried to live this consistent life as much as possible when it came to having everyone agree. And I really tried to carry this out to its logical conclusion. So one story, I've got a couple of stories, and I'll I'll go ahead and start out with one is at Freed Hardeman University. It's a Christian college. And we go. We went there every year. I was at preaching school at the time. And every year, our preaching school would go to their lectureship or seminar. 
and they would have something that was called open forum. Well, open forum is when a professor of the school would get up and talk about a somewhat controversial topic for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then those who disagreed could come up to the microphone and state why they disagree, or they could challenge him, or they could go up and say they agree with them and pat him on the back and give him a hearty amen. Well, this particular session that I was a part of had about 3,000 people. It's, it was huge. I mean, it's a huge auditorium. And I just want to try to put the listener there in, in this situation. So before getting you to what happened prior to me going to this lectureship, the preaching school that I was a part of told me and taught, not just me, but all the students, that if ever you heard a false teacher teach something publicly, you were obligated as a Christian to correct that false teacher. That's what my school was telling me. Well, one of the issues at that school that we taught was sinful and against God's will was the issue of hand clapping in worship to God. And I know that may sound weird to a lot of people if you didn't grow up in a Church of Christ heritage, but the the church group that I was a part of believed that if you hand clapped in worship, that was a sin. And so the preaching school that I was a part of, that's what their leadership and teachers taught as well. Well, here we are now, let's get back to where we were at, at this lectureship. And this professor gets up and he explains, in essence, why he believes it's okay to hand clap in worship songs. Now, here's my training. If you hear a false teacher teach something publicly, you correct him. He's teaching something that I've been told is false and that I, at that point, believe was false. So I get up after he's done and I literally make a mad dash to the microphone. I was the first one to respond to him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and of course I was nervous as I'll get out. I mean, it's in front of 3000 people. I'm here. This, this, this guy is who, who's extremely knowledgeable, well-versed and uh, professor. And here I am a little preaching student in my early twenties. I think I was 21 at the time. And I grabbed the microphone cause they allowed, well, they had microphone. They didn't like grab a microphone from him, but I grabbed the microphone in the, from the audience. And I said, my name is Kevin and I'm coming to you in love. And by the way, when somebody tells you they're coming to you in love, you better run. And so I said, said, I'm coming to you in love, and I'm asking uh, for you to repent, as well as Freed Hardeman University and the faculty, the Bible faculty, who allowed you to get up here and teach this false doctrine. Now, you could hear a pin drop in that auditorium, and a lot of people started clapping for me to mock me, to be antagonistic. But after that was over, my and and of course he just kind of said, well, what's your argument? And I just didn't really know what else to say because I was like, well, you're just wrong. <laughs> there's, <laughs> you, there's no authority for it. You're just wrong. So I'm like, oh man, I didn't anticipate him trying to engage this with me. So I just said, well, you're wrong. Well, he just kind of said, okay, well, let's let's move on to the next person. Well, afterwards, my school, the, the the leadership of my school, they came up to me and said, well, you need Kevin to apologize to him. And I said, well, why do I need to apologize? And he said, well, you didn't handle this correctly. I said, what did I not handle correctly? They said, well, you, you, you weren't respectful. And I said, well, I, I was pretty respectful. And granted, I will say this. There were a lot of times I'm very open about how disrespectful I was. That was one time I was too nervous to be disrespectful. So I, I was not, uh, you know, that was a time I wasn't antagonistic in the sense of, of being like rude and respect, disrespectful. I just flat out, straight out told them, I think you're wrong and you need to repent. And, and so I said, well, I don't understand anything I did that was wrong. This is what you taught me to do. And so then they started saying, well, maybe hand clapping is not a salvation issue. And I said, well, wait a minute. 
I have heard class upon class at this school teaching that it is sin, that it is false doctrine. And if something's false doctrine, it's sin. If something's wrong, it's false doctrine. If it's false doctrine, it's sin. Well, either he's right or he's wrong. And and, and so I, they started trying to soften what they had previously taught, at least to me, by saying, well, we just don't know if this is a salvation issue or not. And this went back and forth, back and forth. Well, I never apologized. I ended up graduating from the school. I later apologized years later, uh, almost 10 years later, well, about eight or nine years later, I finally apologized to the man once I realized that you know I was wrong and what I did and how, how I did it and, and even what I was saying. But the, I say all that to say I really tried to live this idea out. I yeah. really believed that if I was willing to take on anybody in all sincerity if I thought that they were doing something wrong because I was taught that in order to have unity, Everyone has to agree. Everyone has to see things eye to eye. And it was confusing to me because all these people who had taught me hand clapping was a sin, they are now telling me that this isn't a salvation issue. And I'm like, well, look, how are we deciding what's a salvation issue and what's not a salvation issue? And we'll get into that a little bit later uh, when we expose this problem a little bit more. But the point I want to emphasize to people is I get it. I get trying to live it out because I tried to live it out. And people looked at me and said, I was crazy. You better believe I was crazy because I was living a crazy approach to Scripture. And, and the conclusion was absurdity. But that was what I really believed. And I know you have an example as well that that you want to share as well. And I've got one more uh, that's a little more detailed. But go ahead and, and, and share with us one of the examples that you have, too. Well, you know, I, whenever I did the episode where it was just me, you know, you were out of pocket. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a solo one and tell my story. You know, I shared that I'd grown up uh, Pentecostal and I'd grown up oneness Pentecostal. And whenever you talk about essential ideas and essential doctrines, you're 100 percent right when you say every single religious group has those essential doctrines. There are essentials, there are non-essentials, whatever the case may be. And, and growing up, there were a wide variety of different people in the church that I grew up with that had a wide variety of different ideologies of what was essential and what wasn't. But the one thing that was absolutely essential on, you know, for everyone there was the concept of the strict oneness of the Godhead and baptism by immersion in Jesus' name. Those were the two big things. Those were things that were non-negotiable. Um, prospects. Those were things that you had to be in lockstep on in order to to agree. And in some Pentecostal circles, there's the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where in order to truly be saved, you know, you're baptized in water, but then you're also baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by speaking in tongues. Well, there was a there were groups in our church that I grew up in that did believe that you needed to manifest that gift of the Spirit to speak in tongues, and then there were others that didn't. But that wasn't an item or an issue that was pressed really, really hard because we still agreed on the oneness doctrine, also called Jesus name doctrine. And it might be interesting to do a podcast on that. That's a really interesting concept. Um, but in any case, that, that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that was the essential doctrine. Now, whenever I started um, dating my wife, Whenever we began to talk and everything else, found out she went to the Church of Christ. You know, at that point, I really didn't have any interest in religion at all, but we started to study. And that oneness framework, even in that 
absence of theological interest that I had at that stage in my life, whenever I was beginning to explore faith once again, and, I was, and my faith was beginning to be renewed, that was still something that I believed to be true. And so I was on a mission to prove that the Trinity was wrong. This is a wrongheaded idea. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what the Bible says. And so I studied with her. I studied with a wide variety of people, and that was the mission. You know, it was just to prove that wrong because it's an essential thing. It would be impossible for me to have unity with any of these people unless we agreed on this fundamental issue. It would be impossible. Well, since, you know, since then, my perspective on the Godhead has changed. I no longer believe and hold to that, that strict oneness ideology. But that is one of those things that was essential for me growing up. So, I mean, I'm right there with you. And what's, yeah, what's, what's funny is, is that whenever you have this idea and this perspective that this is that essential doctrine, but whenever you shift in your paradigm and that gets blown to smithereens, you end up adopting a whole new set of essential doctrines whenever you leave others behind. It's impossible to get away from the idea of essentials and non-essentials. It's something that simply is, and that's predicated on the framework by which you approach scripture that's going to determine what those essentials are. And that's really a, the the majority of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. One of the more interesting examples of that happened in my life that I experienced firsthand, that was even a little too much for me. <laughs> and that's saying a lot, but th this is one of the examples that actually started to help open my mind a little bit because I saw that when you believe that doctrinal unity is the same thing as Christian unity, then you're gonna you're only gonna have more division because yes. as, as soon as you meet someone and you find out something that that you, you disagree with them on or they disagree with you on, you go, okay, well, sorry, we can't be unified anymore unless you believe the way that I believe or or I have to convert and believe the way you believe because that's the only way that uniformity works. And if that's really what people believe, all it's going to do is is have is, is have a divide, a divide, a divide, more division, more division, more division. So let me give you an example of this literal story. What I'm about to say is not made up. This actually happened to me. It's going to sound like it's made up, but I'm telling you, I promise this is a real story. There was a small congregation that I attended because when I worked with a Gospel of Christ program, I literally traveled to two to three different congregations a week. So I, I was able to experience a lot by traveling. And that really opened my eyes too, because I started to notice that everybody sees things differently. So all these churches I was visiting, they all believed that that they were unified because they believed the same thing. But then I started to get to know all of them. And I noticed that a lot of them did not believe the same things. In fact, there were a lot of different beliefs that there were differences on. But this one particular example happened at a congregation that I was visiting or with where I was visiting. And I uh, was asked to talk about the subject of alcohol. And they had informed me that there were several splits or had been several splits that were taking place at that time within the congregation. They were, they were still all worshiping together, but they were about to, to have all of these different splits because of the topic of alcohol. They're about to formalize it. Yes. Yeah, so this, this member sat down who was really afraid because he didn't really know what to do, how to handle it. He was one of the leaders at this church. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, there, there's a group who believes that you can socially drink, that you can have a, have a glass of wine every now and then, that you can have a little bit of alcohol as long as you don't get drunk. By the way, every single member there believed that 
it was wrong to get drunk, that Christians should not be involving themselves in drunkenness. So everybody agreed with that. That that was agreed upon. The disagreement was, is it over social drinking? Can you have a little bit of alcohol as long as you don't get drunk? Well, one group said yes, one group said no. And when I say one group, this was a smaller church. So most of these were like only two or three families, each of these, these subgroups that I'm about to talk about. So this one group said, no, no, it's wrong. And this other group said, no, it's okay. So there was a divide. Well, that divide that resulted in the group who believed that it was wrong to drink at any time, they started talking about the subject a little bit more. And there was a group who said, well, <laughs> we think it's wrong to go to, to restaurants if they have an open bar because you're in essence supporting that sin. You can go yeah. to other restaurants like fast food and Shoney's and other places that, that, that don't serve alcohol. Or, or I'm sorry, that uh, you can go to places that serve alcohol as long as they don't have an open bar. So that was the next point of contention. Well, guess what? There ended up being a division. So now you have a group of people who say, well, we don't even think that you can go uh, to, to a restaurant that has an open bar. Well, then a discussion arose among them. And there were two families that said, well, wait a minute. We don't think you should be able, if, if we're going to be consistent, we don't think you should even go to a restaurant if it serves alcohol. And that and the other group said, wait a minute now, now hold on. You're, you're, you're binding where God hasn't bound. And they, they said, no, you're loosening where God, uh, you know, has, hasn't. And so we're, we're going to say you shouldn't go to any restaurants at all if they serve alcohol. But one more group with one family arose and said, we think it's wrong to go to any venue whatsoever, anywhere, or to support any establishment if it sells alcohol. And their exception, of course, were gas stations and grocery stores. And the way, well, that, they, to be. And the way that they got around that, is, is, this, is, this is what I was told, the way that they got around that is that, well, the gas station, you, you just don't need to go inside because you can pay for it outside. And the grocery store, as long as you don't walk down the aisle. So you, you, can, you can go to the grocery store, just don't walk down the liquor aisle. So here you had a handful of splits over one issue. And they all agreed, by the way, mind you, that it was wrong to get drunk. But there were all these subdivisions because they believed that in order to have unity, they all had to see everything Alike, And this was a smaller congregation, too. This wasn't even a large congregation. And even within this smaller church, you had all these divisions with just this one issue. This one issue resulted in, what was that, five, five different splits. And five different positions, yeah. Yeah, so, so you see the problem if you think that being in fellowship with someone with uh with with being able to to extend the right hand of fellowship and say we're unified if you think that that means everybody has to see everything alike then it's literally an impossibility which leads us to examining some of these pragmatic problems in a little more detail well and and that's the thing whenever you break down the list of essentials and and this is something you and I have talked about before, is that no one has the same list because you're going to have churches that agree on what's an essential issue, and then you're going to have other churches disagree on what's an essential issue. 
and you're going to like further divide down the line. The further down the line you go, it's, it's going to happen. No one agrees on what an essential issue is because I'm listening to this conversation about alcohol and about the different positions that people have. And what's funny is, is that I've heard different people make all of those same arguments. So I absolutely believe that story is true because I've known people that have taken each of those positions that you just enumerated. But, you know, a lot of our listeners and you and I would be sitting here and thinking, well, that's not an essential issue at all. There's no need to divide over that. <laughs> There's no need to break loose and to, and to form new groups or to split off and form a new congregation or a new church somewhere else over that issue. I think most people would think that, but here's the thing. There are going to be other Christians that say, well, yeah, that's a big deal. That's something we need to divide on. That's something that you have to, you have to stand for the truth. And I'm glad there are people still willing to stand for the truth. And, and that's the issue it's not that there are essentials and non-essentials. It's that there's ve there's very little agreement on what that list of essential things is and isn't. Even Christians within the same denomination, even Christians with the same background, can't agree on an exhaustive list of essentials. For some people, this is essential, this is essential, that isn't, that isn't, that isn't. Or for the other people, well, yeah, that is essential. And breaking that down it is an impossibility when you begin to draw it out. And it's no wonder that the division that exists nowadays does exist because, yeah. because here's the thing. I mean, even in this podcast, as you have grown in your pursuit of grace and as I have grown in my pursuit of grace, and as you explore faith, as I explore faith, and we begin to add those things that are good and noteworthy to our faith, we begin to think about the Bible in a more contextual way, in a more Christ-centered way, in, in a better way, I would even say. In that sense, there's a lot of things that you and I agree on, and there are still a lot of things that you know I have di you know diverted from some of my more conservative brethren on, but I still agree with a lot of what of what they may hold to. But even in our agreement, there's still disagreement, and you and I, there are still some things that that we don't necessarily agree on. No, and and, 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 and I mean, and you have a right to be wrong, you know, and that's yeah, true. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so do you, you know, we, we both reserve that right, but that's the thing. It, it's not just about the group because whenever you break this idea down into essential doctrines or whatever else, you're going to be hard pressed to find any two denominations that have the same list of essentials. That's why the denomination exists in the first place. Yeah. But even when you go within that denomination, you're going to have a hard time finding two congregations that even exist on that same issue. And then whenever you drill that down even further and you get into the congregation, you look at this from an individual level you're going to have a hard time finding two individuals that agree on the same issue. And I, I as think you begin to break that down, that's the core of the issue, bro. Yeah, I think it's telling just to to see how trained even, even we are in this. Because I don't know how many times when I say something or post something or write an article, I say, I don't agree with everything that this person says. Or if I'm, if I'm quoting a source, well, I don't agree with everything in this source. And, and I think, why do I feel that way? And I feel that way because I was trained that if you're going to use anybody's material for whatever reason, you have to make sure that you agree with everything. It's like, I don't agree with anybody on everything. And, and if I do, then one of us probably aren't thinking for ourselves. Yeah. And yeah. so so this is, this is what really broke everything down to, for me, okay? So I conducted a personal experiment back in 2014 among Christians within my church tradition, my church heritage, within the Church of Christ. And it involved just eight questions and about a 
a hundred participants. I say about a hundred because I think it was like 103 or 104. I don't remember exactly. Um, but I, all it was was eight questions, doctrinal questions within the churches of Christ. And can you guess how many participants agreed with one another on every single issue? Very few. I, w- I would say less than five, more than likely zero. Zero. Absolutely none. There wasn't a there 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 were there was nobody, not two Christians agreed on every single issue. Now some of them agreed on you know maybe six things. Some agreed on maybe four. But there was not complete uniformity. And this was mind you eight eight questions with with just a little over a hundred people who have the exact same cultural understanding of these doctrinal issues, or should I say doctrinal conditioning in the same church culture. Now, th- this is this is what I always, right here, I challenge people to do this. If you're listening right now and, and you're hearing what I'm saying and you're hearing what Lee's saying and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know, maybe, th- maybe you guys are overstating the case a little bit. See for yourself. This is like one of those magic tricks that you can do for yourself. If you, you know, if you've like watched a magician, he's like, "All right, now we're going to do magic at home, so you can see it for yourself." Because sometimes you just got to see it for yourself. So this is what I tell people to do: if if you really want to see this play out, then I encourage you to conduct your own survey of sorts and, and see for yourselves. You don't even have to ask specific questions. All you have to do is request that each participant write all of the particular doctrinal views that they believe are essential to Christianity and then have them give their understanding of each topic. Now, and if, by, uh, let, let me interject real quick. By essential yeah. to Christianity, that is something that, if not adhered to or followed, will cause one to be to lost, be lost. And, yeah. and is equated with a rejection of Christ. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. So some something that 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 you think this is essential. This is a a heaven or hell issue. This is a salvation issue. So say so. Just get a group of people and say, write down every single one, every single one that you believe falls under that category. And then once you do that, give just a quick conclusion on what you think it is. So for example, if you say, well, I think the qualifications of elders, I think that's an essential issue because that's leaders in the church. So if you think that that's an essential issue, write down qualifications of elders and then give exactly what you think each one of those mean. So if you think faithful uh, or, or faithful children mean you have to have multiple children who are Christians, write down multiple Christians who are children. Okay. So whatever, you don't don't give people options. Just have them write down whatever they want. Say, look, we all but we all believe in uniformity here. <laughs> so everybody write down, and we everybody should come away not only with the same list, but with the sa- same exact same conclusions on each one of those items within the list. Now, if you're already thinking to yourself, this sounds absolutely absurd because there's no way that two people are going to come away believing the same thing. And the answer is you're absolutely right because if you have each of your participants do it independently without any kind of coercion, you're going to find that at least two things are inevitable. Number one, people disagree on how they view specific topics and subjects. They just do. People are going yeah. to understand the the, the, the different issues in, in various ways. But number two, and this is even more important to me, everybody has a different list of issues that they believe should be considered essential in the first place. So, yeah. This is this is a reality that we can't even agree on what we're supposed to agree on. <laughs> the, yeah. we, we don't even have a, a starting point. We don't even know what we're supposed to be agreeing on, yet we 
have bought into this idea that we all see everything alike. And, uh, it, it, man, that we I, have to see everything alike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We have to. And, and, and which is the presupposition that we already do because we're in fellowship with each other. And you start really breaking this down. I was talking about the qualifications of an elder. Uh, this was actually the, another lectureship, by the way, lectureships for whatever reason got me in trouble when I was younger, but this was when <laughs> I was already employed at the gospel of Christ. I went to another lectureship and they were talking about instrumental music and worship and how they believe that was sinful, which at the time, of course, I agreed with that. But then they were talking about the qualifications of an elder. And I just asked, this open form didn't allow people to have microphones, which smart move, but <laughs> you, you could write it in and they had a little box you could put it in. So I wrote down a question and I asked, why are, why are number one, why are there so many views regarding the qualifications of an elder? And number two, why are we okay with agreeing to disagree on the qualifications of an elder, but not something like worship and instrumental music? Well, they got up there and they read the question and there was a panel, I think, of about three guys. And they just looked at each other and kind of kind of laughed and said, well, I'll, I'll let one of you other men answer that. And so one of the guys said, well, there are some things we just have to agree to disagree on. And the qualifications of elders happens to be one of those things. But he never gave a reason and he never gave a gauge. And he said that if he could answer that question, it surely would um, take away a lot of arguments uh, that people have among each other. But he said that he believes that that's just an issue we can agree to disagree on. Well, then the next day, <laughs> there was a keynote speaker who brought this session back up and said, I want to talk about sound doctrine tonight. And by the way, there was a man yesterday on the panel who said that the qualifications of elders is not a salvation issue. He's wrong. And I want to publicly call him out because he was wrong for saying that because the qualifications of an elder, that is an essential issue. That is a salvation issue. So in that moment, what I realized is not only do people disagree on all sorts of topics, but people can't even agree. Even if they can agree on something, they don't even know if it's a salvation issue or not. And so that was really another instance that really just opened my eyes to see the absurdity of the idea that unity equals uniformity. Well, and, and one of the things that you see in Scripture is that unity is something that, that God expects and that God desires of His people. He wants us to be unified. He wants us to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. And whenever we see that in what is it, First Corinthians one and ten, you know, you know that you know, I will that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Whenever you look at Jesus's prayer in John seventeen, where he wants his followers to be unified and to have unity with one another, whenever you present a unified front, you're a force for good in the world. And whenever you're truly unified and you're all working together cohesively with one another, that's, I mean, it's hard to stop a movement that has true cohesion and unity. It's incredibly hard to stop that. The issue is, is that no one disagrees that unity is important, but somewhere along the way, we began to confuse unity with uniformity. It's not that you can unify with one another and work together for the common good of expanding the kingdom of God and the borders of Zion with one another and carrying Jesus to this lost world who desperately, desperately need him. You have to agree on all of these points of doctrine. It, it's 
it's moved away from a relational unity that you have, like what you would have with your spouse or like what you would have with your brother or your sister, your natural brother or sister in, in the flesh, you know, like Kim and I are unified. We have unity, but we are not uniformly in agreement on every single thing. I mean, I'm of the opinion that my kids, and I think it's because of my grandpa and how I was raised, I'm of the opinion that my kids should clean their plates whenever they eat. Don't let, don't waste food. Don't leave any food behind. That's a value that was ingrained into me. And I'm kind of leaning more towards Kim's opinion now. Like I, I tend to agree with her a little more on this now. She's like, listen to your body. And when you're full, you're full. So we don't even agree on that. But the concept of unity requiring uniformity, if that is what unity actually is, then Kim and I don't have unity. If that's the case, it's impossible to have unity with everybody. And I really believe with all of my heart after really thinking about this, praying about this, and and really considering this idea, that is a byproduct of the approach to Scripture that has been taken and the desire to find a blueprint. And I know that's not really in our notes, and we're, we're going to get into that later in other episodes, but the idea that the Scriptures contain a blueprint for how exactly we are to worship God. The Scriptures contain the blueprints for what the church is supposed to look like and how the church is supposed to function, and this is how we're supposed to do it. That you know, hermeneutic of command, example, necessary inference, and searching the scriptures to find the exact blueprint, this idea of uniformity in doctrine is a byproduct of that hermeneutic. It's a byproduct of that approach to scripture, and it hasn't led to unity. It hasn't created unity. It has only demanded uniformity, and it has led to division after division after division, because no two persons' lists are the same. The doctrines that are non-negotiable for one person are not necessarily going to be the same ones that are non-negotiable for the other. There's no objective way to do that. It's not possible. And and the reality should help us to to come to this conclusion, because there are currently over 30,000 Christian denominations in the world. Now, let me just put that in perspective for, for, for those who are listening. If you visited one new Christian denomination a week, it would take you approximately 577 years before you could get to all of them. Now, let's, wow. let's say that you were dedicated and said, you know what, I'm going to spend one day every single day studying each unique denomination so that I can see the differences. Because obviously, if they're unique, there's differences between every single one of them. So I'm going to spend one day studying all of these 30,000 denominations, one at a time. If you did that, it would take you 82 years to just spend one day out of your life looking at each denomination. And that's, by the way, 10 years longer than the average life expectancy, and that doesn't even include when you're a child and when you're young and things or work or life or sleep or anything else. So, you know, when you when you break it down like that, we see how diverse Christianity is. Christian Smith, he pointed out an interesting stat. Uh, I don't even know if I've talked to you about this book or not, but I'm going to be putting some of this information in my new book because this is just fascinating. It's a book called Across the Spectrum by uh, Boyd and Eddie, and It's called Understanding Issues in Evangelical Theology. And this is what Smith noted in the book. He said, or from this book, he said, this book compares either two, three, or four alternative Bible-based evangelical positions on 17 theological concerns 
about which contemporary evangelicals disagree. Okay, so in other words, what the book does is it says here are 17 issues. By the way, you want me to tell tell you what the issues are so everybody knows what they are? Yeah. Okay, just so people know that these are not just, you know, weird, unique issues. Because look, I just talked about the qualifications of the elder, of, of an elder and the qualification of what it means to have faithful children. That has about seven or eight different uh, understandings to it. You know, does it mean one children? Does it mean multiple children? Does it mean faithful children in the sense of obedient? Or does it mean faithful in the sense of Christian? Well, if you have two children, but one of them's a, a Christian, the other's not, can you be an elder? Must all your children be Christian? Well, what if they were a Christian, but one of them aired away? What if all of them aired away? What if one of them died? What if they were faithful while you were in the household or when they were in your household, but they weren't later? What if they were faithful uh, later in life, but they weren't while they were in your house? I mean, you could you could ask so many. And by the way, there's positions on every single one of those by good, sincere, honest Bible students. So anyway, here getting back to my, my original point, though, these are the 17 issues in that book, okay? The inerrancy of Scripture the providence of God, divine foreknowledge, creation, divine image and humanity, Christology, atonement, salvation, sanctification, eternal security, the destiny of the unevangelized, baptism, the Lord's Supper, charismatic gifts, women in ministry, eschatology, and hell. So those were the 17 issues. And what they did is they said, okay, here are 17 current popular issues right now. And what they did is they took either two, three, or four alternative views for each one of those views. So the ones that had four popular views, they listed those four views. The ones that maybe just had two popular views, they listed those two. They did that with each one. And here is the fascinating thing about that. In theory, when they did this, this creates more than, are you ready for this, 5 million unique potential theological belief positions that any given person might espouse composed of possible combinations of all the alternative all the alternative views of those 17 issues that is crazy <laughs> and it just goes to show how powerful exponential growth is that's what exponents do and brother that's mind blowing that's yeah, just I, insane. So, so, and, and so to, to make sure people understand, because I actually did not understand this number at first. I'm like, wait a minute. How do you get that out of just two, three, or four alternative views on 17 issues? It's kind of like Sonic. You know how they say like they have so many, you know, drink combinations. Keep in mind, this is talking about um, the, uh, the, the uniformity combinations of beliefs. So what this is saying is, is that there may be people who hold all views correct except for one. And there may be people who hold all views correct, but you know six or eight, or they may only hold two views correct. So what it's doing is it's taking all of those issues, putting it together in a way that says this is the combination of these beliefs. What's the possibility? How many different combinations of beliefs does this produce? How many permutations are there? Yes, and there, there's over 5 million. So that's, by the way, 17 issues. That's not 100 issues. That's 17 issues. So when you break this down even further, which, by the way, there's a lot more than 17 issues that people, disag- that people disagree over. No so, doubt. So 17 issues, and it comes to a 5 million. So that means, pragmatically and mathematically, it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility for Christians to have uniformity because they can't even study. Look, I just went and said 30,000 denominations in the world. It would take you 82 years just to just to take one day to look at it, much less get in depth with every single one of them. 
if we are truly to test all things, and that's what First Thessalonians 5.21 means, we literally have to look at every single possibility before we can know what truth is, and we have to be right on everything. Do you see why legalism is just ridiculously crazy and, and insane? I mean, this this whole idea is is laughable if it wasn't so sad that people really buy into this stuff. And, and I did, so, by the way. I'm not pointing my finger. I bought into this for so many years. Well, and it's so tragic, and it, it lends itself to legalism because at this point, if this is the approach you're taking, and it's a and it's and don't get me wrong. I want to make this clear to our listeners. Kevin and I are not saying that doctrine doesn't matter. What we're simply saying is, is that if unity is, and what the Bible teaches uni- unity is, is in actuality doctrinal uniformity, it's not possible. It's simply not possible. It it just can't be done. And whenever that approach is taken and you begin to look at doctrinal precision and doctrinal obedience and having exactly the right set of doctrines to follow, and that's what salvation is predicated upon, that lends itself to legalism. There's there's no other way that legalism can really be born except from this perspective. Because at this point, if I'm thinking that if I clap, you know, if if instrumental music is a sin and I clap my hands in worship, well, drums have skins for heads and my hands are made of skin. I'm essentially playing a percussion instrument. That therefore is a sin. That's wrong. That's exactly wrong. And if unity is predicated on everyone agreeing with me on that topic, well, if you do that, if you clap your hands, well, then you're going to hell. That is taking salvation out of the hands of God and it's placing it into my hands that I'm clapping during worship at this point. It's it's making my salvation predicated upon my understanding and being able to ascertain and drill down the list and knowing exactly what that list is, ensuring that I have the right list and making sure that everyone that I worship with or every Christian that names Christ shares that list with me. So then instead of taking Jesus to the world, I'm going to begin to take my demands of not clapping in church to the world. And I'm going to begin promoting that idea. I'm going to begin promoting that ideology. Yeah. And, well, and, and if you disagree with me, well, then you're wrong. And that in and of itself, that is legalism to a T. That is what legalism is. It's demanding that there is a law that must be followed that God never made. And nobody's doing this right now anyway. So even for those who actually believe that doctrinal unity is uniformity and that everybody they have fellowship with and and attend church with or whatever, if they really think that everyone is unified on, on all of these issues, they, they, they're not even going to be unified on what issues they're supposed to be unified on. And here's something else to consider. When I was honest with myself, I, I had to admit that not even two Christians in fellowship with one another could provide the exact same list of doctrinal issues, much less agree on the meaning of each of the things within the list. And if everyone's list is different, then how can we claim it is universal? And and that was a question that I just couldn't answer. But this is what led me to understand why so many churches, especially the more legalistic and dogmatic churches, they try to keep their list of what they believe to be essentials very small 
and exclusive to their specific group. So like, for example, the Churches of Christ, I don't know how many sermons I heard on authority and instrumental music and, 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 and you know, why it's wrong to have a praise team and why women can't pray. The, it just continued the same thing, the, the quote-unquote oneness of the church and all other churches are wrong. I mean, I, I that was literally, I, I'm careful with this word, brainwashed, but I mean, that's what it was. I was conditioned every It was week. indoctrination, yeah. Yeah, and so what happened is that creates a mirage that everybody is unified. Why? Well, because, hey, we both think instrumental music's wrong. We think we're part of the only group of people going to heaven. We think it's wrong for women to get up and pray. Hey, we got all this stuff in common. We are unified. The problem is, is that when you get outside of that small presuppositional box of doctrines, you start seeing, wait a minute, everybody sees things differently. And then it just begins to unfold and unfold and unfold. And that's why there's this mirage at a lot of churches where they'll only focus on a handful of issues because they'll say, okay, we're unified because we all see these things alike, but they don't have a comprehensive understanding of the Bible. Growing up, I knew my beliefs very well, and I even knew what the Bible said, but I wasn't actually studying the Bible. Instead of studying the Bible to get my beliefs, I already had my beliefs, and I studied the Bible with those beliefs in mind, and I was able to constantly stockpile Bible verses that supposedly prove why I believe what I believe. Yeah. Well, and that's the same thing that I did growing up in that one that's Pentecostal circle. And I love how you phrase that about the mirage of unity, because that's the mirage that exists in the church that I grew up in. Because virtually every sermon, and I'm not joking when I say virtually every sermon that I heard growing up as a child was about the oneness of the Godhead, Jesus name and water baptism. Those were the, those were the three big things that were preached on every single time our preacher stepped into the pulpit. We didn't hear sermons on the grace of God. We didn't hear sermons about Jonah, just to throw something out there or uh, Noah in the ark or, you know, other things. And if we did, and they were mentioned, it always tied back into the oneness of the Godhead. It always tied back into baptism. That's absolutely right. Yeah, every, every single time. And so here's here's another problem that this brings up as well. Because this episode, we're talking about the problems, and then we're going to talk about the solutions in the next episode. Another problem is that this actually encourages people to not study their Bible and be curious. You're not yeah. allowed to be curious, because if you're curious, you might accidentally find something that you, you you have a conviction on that your church group doesn't think you should. Or you might begin asking questions that you shouldn't be asking because that's outside of the box and you don't need to be asking those kind of questions. You just need to be accepting the spoon-fed conditional doctrine that you've been getting week in and week out. And and what that does, because I, I remember talking to a, a preacher friend of mine when he quote-unquote withdrew fellowship from me when I started changing. And he says, well, I can't fellowship with you anymore because you think that people who use instrumental music are, are not going to go to hell. And I said, no, I don't believe they're going to go to hell. And he said, well, I can't fellowship with you anymore. I said, well, what about all the people who've never studied the issue of instrumental music, but they just happen to still sing a cappella and they don't use instruments? He goes, well, they're perfectly acceptable because they don't believe a false doctrine. I said, so it's better not to study and come to a different conclusion than you have than it would be to actually study and dig deep and end up coming to a different conclusion. It would just be better to remain ignorant than it would be to actually get deep into study. Because the more you study, the more you're going to find that there are things that you change on. There's going to be things that you realize that you see differently, things you didn't know what was there. 
So then there was another person who was withdrawing fellowship from somebody else because they had a different view on the end times. That's eschatology. And there's a lot of views on eschatology like uh, premillennialism. We've talked about preterism and the, the new heavens and new earth, restored creation belief. And there's a lot of different positions. And one person says, well, I've never studied any of these. And the preacher said, well, that's that's probably better off you do. You, you don't delve into this because you don't want to accidentally believe the wrong thing. So it was better for this person to say, I don't really know anything about eschatology. I've really never done much digging. And the preacher said, well, you know, that's a good thing, because if you do too much digging, you may end up coming to a conclusion that doesn't agree with mine, and then I'd have to withdraw fellowship from you. So the, the problem here is that it actually encourages people to not be curious. It encourages people to not study their Bibles other than to constantly reaffirm their positions that they already have. By the way, all churches do this. This is why people say that you can go to the Bible and prove anything. That's exactly true. You can literally, every single doctrine that exists that's ever been carried by a Christian, they had a Bible reason for believing it. So you can yeah. really go to the Bible. You can go to the Bible to justify uh, uh, killing babies in mother's wombs. You can go to the Bible to justify slavery. You can go to the justify just go to the Bible to justify um, hate. You can go to the Bible to justify anything you want to. And so that's why it's important, of course, if we're going to get later to talk about how do we how do we look at unity? Because these are all these problems, and so we can't look at unity as uniformity. It's just not possible. And there you have that added problem of people are not going to study like they should or like they could because they're scared to death that, uh-oh, I'm okay right now, but what if I reach a wrong conclusion by studying? It's just better I don't study. Well, and, and that that in and of itself is not the right attitude to have. I mean, don't test all things and hold fast that, which was good. You know, just accept what you've been taught as truth and just coast with that. You know, that's, that's not what the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul. That's not what Paul enumerated whenever he wrote his letter to the church in Thessalonica. But I want to add another position or another nuance to what you just said, because I think that, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I can remember a conversation I had with a brother. We were talking about different books we had read. And one of the things he kept using the term dangerous books, you know, well, you know, or dangerous books or dangerous, um, theologians. And I'm like, well, well, what makes them dangerous? Well, they, they're not speaking the truth there. And you have to have a lot of discernment to be able to, to read that. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, what makes a book dangerous. It's that it might lead you to a conclusion that goes against the party line. And I have some experience with that, with this idea. I mean, that's one of the biggest things that led to us starting this podcast is that entire mentality of not being able to ask questions, being afraid to ask questions because you'll either get laughed to scorn or you'll be you know, accused of having a weak faith or of not really loving Jesus or of not being sincere or just saying, I don't know why you'd think that and just being brushed off and brushed aside, you, you're not really able to ask the questions that need to be asked. And after you and I started this podcast, there there's some heat that was drawn from some brethren that I know and that I still love and respect tremendously. And I had a long conversation with one of them. And one of the things that he said is, is, well, it's okay to ask questions. It is okay to ask questions. I was kind of surprised to hear him say that. But he said, it's okay to ask questions, but you need to talk to a faithful preacher. You need to talk to someone who's faithful and bring those questions to them so they can answer them. 
It's like you can ask all the questions you want as long as the answers you find are in lockstep with the presupposition or with the um, doctrinal construct that has already manifested itself that you already move within. It's okay to ask those questions, but you must do so with these people and you must arrive at these conclusions. And if that's the case, it's like, well, I'm not really asking questions anyway. And what happens when the answers that are given are either unsatisfactory, extra biblical, or they're questions that can't be answered to, yeah. to in any satisfactory way? What then? Yeah, and and, and that's really just a, another problem of of sub problem of of what I call proxy faith. Because the idea of marking a false teacher, boy, people have really abused that because what they'll tell their congregation is, well, don't read this or don't watch that or don't listen to this person because they're a false teacher. And and they may give one or two reasons, and usually those reasons are misguided. Those reasons are oversimplifications. Uh, they may not even be an accurate portrayal of what the, the person believes. Either way, the point is, is that simply saying, well, this person's a false teacher, that doesn't make them a false teacher. So... Here, if you if you have thirty thousand denominations and a good chunk of those are legalistic, for example, and they each claim that the other is legalistic, then no one's ever going to listen to anybody. No one's ever going to study anything other than what they already believe, and it's going to become an echo chamber. It's it's like when we were studying with Mormons. I was in preaching school, and, and they told me they were not allowed to take any material other than the material that they've been given by their leaders. So when we tried to give them tracks, which was probably just as full of garbage as the stuff they were giving us, but <laughs> when, uh, when, we, <laughs> when, we were, when we were giving them tracks, they're like, we can't take this. And we're like, well, that's not fair. You know, you're wanting to, you're wanting to tell us what you believe. Why don't you not let us tell you what we believe? We can't do it. And that's what happens to a lot of congregations. Like, well, I, I can't read that book. There were preachers telling people, do not read Kevin Pendergrass's book. Do, do not read his book. And, and people are like, well, why? They're like, because it's full of false doctrine. The person's like, well, don't you think I need to figure that out for myself? Because if you, and I've had people ask me, why do we believe in the Bible, Kevin? Why do we believe this? And I, my question is, my response is, look, I don't know why you believe. I don't know why you, I, I know why I believe. And so even things that I believe are false, I'm very careful with saying, well, this person's a false teacher. Because I may say, I, here's here are reasons why I believe that this person is doing something wrong. Here's why I do not agree. Here's why I challenge this position. And this is why I think what this person's teaching is false. But you need to go and you need to study their materials and you need to figure it out. The, the last thing we need to do is censor information and not allow people access to things that conflict with their own beliefs. Because when you allow and you broaden your spectrum of viewing information, it helps you to, to distinguish between that which has evidence and that which doesn't, that which makes sense, that which doesn't. Uh, you know, there may be some things that it's a mixture. Well, this has a good point, but that has a good point. And so it really results in proxy faith, even among those who are allowed to question, as you talk about, well, sure, you can ask questions, but you got to come back to our conclusions. Well, what happens if I come to a different conclusion? Well, you, you need to keep studying because you're, you're not where you need to be because if you were where you need to be, uh, you would be where I'm at, and that that's the way that this is often presented. But here, here are five, or excuse me, four questions that I asked myself, and I wrote these down in my book because these are questions that really challenged my own thinking when it came to this. The first one is I realized that if this is unity, if doctrinal uniformity is what God has called us to, to all His Christians. Well, first of all, it's impossible. But the first one is. 
I had to be willing to provide this method of unity in Scripture. So my first question is, where is this method of unity taught in Scripture? Where does the Bible say we have to see everything alike? And by the way, there are some verses we're going to talk about in the next episode that people do use, and I do think they talk about unity, but we're going to explain why contextually we think that they're talking about something different. But if you don't agree with us, please go and read their information so that you can see for yourself. So number one, where is this method of unity taught in Scripture? Number two, where is the biblical gauge and what is the biblical gauge that distinguishes between a matter of opinion and a matter of, of unity or a matter of fellowship? You know, wh- wh- where is this list? What is the gauge? Where is this gauge? How are people deciding that it's okay to smoke a cigarette every now and then, but it's not okay to, to, to drink a little bit of alcohol or it's okay to, to chew, but it's not okay to smoke a cigarette or it's okay to have a praise team, but it's not okay to have a band or it's okay to have a woman's talking Bible class, but it's not okay to let her uh, say a prayer in, in the worship assembly. It's okay to let her have a prayer in worship assembly, but it's not okay to let her preach a sermon. And I mean, the list is endless. Trust me, because I spent months on this stuff. Really, I spent years in some form or fashion thinking this stuff through. But if I believe that I could show the difference between a salvation issue and a non-salvation issue, I had to go to the Bible. I had to go to the Bible and say, here's how we know how to distinguish. And it's not there. The third question I had to ask myself is, what is my completed detailed list of doctrines that are necessary for unity? What is it? Like, what is my detailed list? And I sat down and tried writing this years ago, and I just continued thinking of more things, and then I would erase something, and then I would think of something else, and I'd be like, well, no, I don't know if think that's essential. Well, no, I do think this is, well, I don't know if this is essential or not. And even, I couldn't even put together a coherent list, because as I was doing this, I was like, well, I don't know. I don't really know if this is essential. And so it's, it, I actually taught a Bible class on this topic about a year ago at a congregation, we had all the different issues up that the Church of Christ, like we, we talked about all these different issues that the Church of Christ disagree, has, dis, had, has had disagreements over. And I said, well, let's go through each one <laughs> and quickly, and I'm going to go through, through each view, and in your mind, you say if that's what you believe or not. And so I went through all the different views, you know, and people just started laughing because they're like, this is comical. It's crazy. So because you can't, you can't do it. Nobody's going to have the same list. Furthermore, the, the other question is that I had to ask myself, why even two Christians couldn't agree upon an exhaustive and universal list? And by the way, what kind of God is that who has given a standard that says everyone has to agree on the same list, but no two Christians in history have ever done that before? Why? If, if none of them have ever done that before, and yet we think that's what God's teaching, it's absolutely absurd when we break it down and carry it to its logical conclusion. Trust me, because I was that absurd person trying to carry it to its logical conclusion. And the more you do it, the more division you have. And I got to the point where I even, I talk about this in my book, I almost, well, I did, I, I pretty much withdrew fellowship from my own mentor at one point because there was something that we had a disagreement on. So I, I just, I was like, well, shoot, who can I who can I have fellowship with? I mean, there's nobody I can really have fellowship with. Well, and I think that that, what you just said about God, you know, what kind of God would 
predicate unity upon this doctrinal uniformity, you know, why would God do that? And if that is what God intended for unity to be, then why does the Bible look the way that it does? And it, and it gets to the core. The, the core of it is, is what kind of God do we serve? What is our perspective on a loving, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise God? What kind of God would do that and make it that difficult to, to extrapolate? And, and a lot of it boils down to this list. And whenever the Bible is approached in this manner, you almost have to resort to making a list of all of these things. And so if, if that's the case, my question is, and these, this is some of the conversations I've had with some really good people, with some really well-meaning people, people who love Jesus and who really have a zeal to do, to do what's right. You know, I, I would ask, what is the list? Christianity is more than a checklist. Well, absolutely. But if you disagree with this and with this and with this and with this, well, then you can't really say that you're following Jesus. And I'm like, well, where did you find that list? And it's something that's extrapolated from the scripture. It's not really there. It's not really something that is painted within scripture. It's it's really maddening. And like you said, dude, it just gets crazy. Because in essence, what we would expect to find, if that's the case, is we would expect to have a list of rules and regulations for life, for worship, for godliness, and all of that thing spelled out plainly. And we do have that in the Bible in some places. Like if you look at the book of Leviticus, and I think this is a point, a point that you and I have discussed. I don't know if I've made this point on the podcast, but if you look at Leviticus, you see instructions for how the tabernacle is supposed to be built. This is how wide it needs to be. This is how long it needs to be. This is the depth of it. This is how the holy place is supposed to be built. This is how the most holy place is to be built. This is how big the courtyard needs to be. This is what the altar needs to be made of. This is the number of steps that need to go up to the altar. This is what you sacrifice on the altar on these days. This is what you do for this sin. This is what you sacrifice for that sin. This is where the holy, the, the seat of mercy, the mercy seat needs to be placed, the Ark of the Covenant. This is what is going to be inside the Ark of the Covenant. The priests can only be these people from this tribe. They need to wear these clothes. They need to have the clothes made of this material. These are the colors they need to be. This is what their underwear needs to be. These are the jewels that go on their frock that they need to wear. This is the order that they're put in. This priest does this part of the service. This priest does that. These are the trumpets that need to be blown to call people in. They need to be made out of silver. They need to be hand hammered. This is when they're used. This is when they're not used. These are the people that do this and that and whatever else. You see that in Leviticus. You see it lined out and spelled out beautifully and perfectly how the worship of God was to take place in the Mosaic system. Well, whenever you come to the Christian age and you get into the church where that is behind us and Jesus is in front of us, Jesus is that sacrifice, it's almost as if we expect there to be a list of things within Scripture that describe all of those things if that is what unity is to be predicated upon and all of us following the list of doctrinal um, propositions and believing the right thing and practicing the right things according to the list, I would expect the New Testament to look like Leviticus, yeah. but it doesn't. In the New Testament, you have a narrative account of the life of Jesus, and you don't just have one. You've got four of them. 
you're going to have epistles and letters that are written to different churches dealing with different things at different times. We're not reading a law document. We're not reading an instruction manual for how the church is to be structured and how it's to function. We're reading other people's mail. That's what we're reading whenever we read the New Testament. And, and by the way, just to interject, talking about Leviticus, even a constitution for a nation, because that's that's what the Old Testament was. That they were yeah. a nation, and there was a governmental system, and a, it, 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 and that was really a constitution of sorts. It was written like a constitution. It reads like a constitution. And even then, there was so many different debates that that people had over that. So many different rabbis had different understandings yes. of what those things meant. Even you know throughout the the ages, I mean, they they disagreed on uh, even some of the writers, we see things progressing from uh, what the death penalty meant and when the death penalty should be enforced. And even those things were di- were changed throughout the Old Testament law among some of the, the leaders because there was disagreement. And so even when, even, even when God gave a constitution, they didn't keep it and they didn't even agree on what they should be keeping or how they should be keeping it much less when god gives us letters that are not written like a christian that are that's not a christian constitution to think that somehow we are to extrapolate a, a, a list a universal list of specifics that are non-negotiables versus a list that are not and and if people are listening to this thinking well yeah but guys there's got to be something we have to agree on you're exactly right and we're going to talk about that but right in the now, next episode, <laughs> we're, we're, we're beating the dead horse because we want people to see this is what changed us. And yes. from this point forward, this would be the episode. Lee and I were talking about this before uh, before we started uh, recording. And I said, this is going to be the episode when people say, if, if I had one episode to listen to that I'm struggling right now and I'm changing and I need to know what direction to go and what I need to begin to deconstruct, this would be the first thing to deconstruct. Because when you believe that unity is dependent upon doctrinal uniformity and you see how utterly ridiculous that is, that helps to open your mind to other things, to consider, huh, wow, if I've been wrong on this, what else should I reconsider? Perhaps I need to completely reframe things. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to interject that there. Well, no, that was perfect because you went where I was going because... And that's where I was going to with Leviticus. You see a list of exactly how things were supposed to go in numbers. You see some of that there in Exodus. You see some of that there in Deuteronomy. You see Deuteronomy looks a lot more like Leviticus. There's not a lot of narrative in those sections of the Pentateuch, but even though it's spelled out and laid out clearly, you see some diversity between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You see some diversity between Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And even then, when it's spelled out and laid out in black and white, and you essentially have a list of doctrines, there's still disagreement in Jewish history over what's non-negotiable, what's essential, what's non-essential. There's still disagreement when it takes that form. Mm -hmm. And that fits within the genre of law. And then you get into the New Testament, you don't see that same genre. It's not a law book. It's not a list of rules and regulations. And just like we talked about respecting the genre of Scripture and recognizing genre for what it is, whenever we talked about origins, it's the same thing with this. That's a foundational issue and a foundational element. And like you said, we've we've really talked at length about this. We've beaten the dead horse, and we've really covered everything we wanted to, to talk about. But to hammer this out further and to really condense it down, um, you had your four questions you wanted to ask. We're going to kind of end this episode with these questions. Ask yourself these questions. 
ask yourself this whenever you consider this idea of unity. If you still have the belief in your mind that unity is predicated upon doctrinal uniformity and believing everything alike, think about this. Do you believe, number one, that every single person with whom you currently fellowship, these are people that you have extended the right hand of fellowship to. These are people that you believe are your brethren. They are in good standing before God, that, that these, are, these are people that are above reproach. Do you believe that every single person with whom you fellowship has the exact same list of doctrinal essentials that you identify as doctrinal essentials? Does your list align with everyone else? Number two, do you believe every single person agrees with you on every single issue that you deem to be a doctrinal issue or a fellowship issue. Number three, if someone's list of fellowship issues differs from yours in any way, can you still have fellowship with them? And number four, if someone happened to disagree with you on just one item that you believe to be a doctrinal issue, a fellowship issue, a heaven or hell issue, whatever term you want to use for it, would you remain consistent with your view of unity by withdrawing and disfellowshipping from every single person that disagrees with you on even one issue? Ask yourself those questions because those are the questions a form of those. They've been refined kind of over the years. Kevin has, you know, interjected some of his things in here to, to kind of clean that up. These are the questions that led me down the road to where I am now. Because I couldn't answer these questions. I was not willing to fellowship because like you, dude, I wasn't willing to disfellowship these other people because like you, I realized if I did so, I would become an island unto myself. And that's the only way this ends. In, in short and in conclusion with this episode, I think that we've established fairly well that unity is not predicated on doctrinal uniformity. And I can hear now that there's probably going to be some critics that are out there saying, well, you didn't really quote very many scriptures. Oh, believe me, the scriptures are coming in the next episode. The reason why we didn't quote any scriptures or very many scriptures in this particular episode is because there is zero scriptural foundation for uniformity being what God desires of his people. It's yeah. not there. That's in, why we didn't quote them, because there's none to quote. And in addition to that, I'm assuming that this is what the Bible teaches. If we were to assume the Bible does teach doctrinal uniformity, here's what would be the problem with that. So if, if, if this is the problem it leads to, if doctrinal uniformity is mathematical and pragmatically impossible, if no two Christians have the exact same universal list of what's essential and what's not essential, if there has never been a time in history which all Christians have always agreed on the exact same set of, set of issues— and, you know, by the way, people say, well, what, what you know, there, there, there are times when Christians have a lot of things in common. You're exactly right. There are. And, and, and there are many things. If you look at all these denominations, there are things that Christians have in common. But the point is they exist because they see some things differently, so much so that they believe that they have to have their own denomination. 
Now, granted, I'll say this, there are a lot of denominations who do not have the view that everyone has to see things just like them. So I, I want to be very careful not to overstate the case and say every single one of these thousand, 30,000 con- uh, churches believe that they exclusively have all the truth. No, because more and more churches are starting to open up and say, while we have our beliefs on things, we don't believe that everyone has to see it this way. This is just the way that we worship. This is the way we believe. And we don't want to offend others who may do it differently. So this is the way we're going to do it. So there are a lot that do fall in that category. But as Lee was saying, those who dogmatically enforce their beliefs, their so-called list, if you were to challenge them and their congregation and the people they fellowship, they will find and you will find that that doctrinal unity or that, excuse me, that doctrinal uniformity that's called unity is simply not true. It's not biblical. It's nowhere found in scripture. And even if we were to assume that's the way it's supposed to be done, it's mathematically and pragmatically impossible. And it's never been done before. So so if, if you break it down, since really you've never had two Christians see absolutely everything alike, that means either nobody's going to heaven or one person is going to heaven. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's your only option. And guess what? Everybody thinks they're the one. And when everybody thinks they're the one, but everybody's different, then nobody is the one. Yeah. And, and what ends up happening is, is that instead of focusing on Jesus and his redemptive act, and instead of focusing on the author and finisher of our faith, we begin to focus on the list and we begin to promote and preach the list instead of preaching Jesus. Oh, and, and I want to inject one more. Sorry, Lee. Were you done? No, go ahead, brother. Well, go ahead. I was just thinking because I'm, I'm trying, I'm hearing in my head just what I would say if I was listening to myself eight years ago. But, oh, what about this? What about this? And we're going to cover a lot of that. But even the Apostles' Creed, a lot of people talk about the Apostles' Creed. Um, with views on eschatology, <laughs> the Apostles' Creed, a lot of Christians don't agree on, on the Apostles' Creed because you have different views on eschatology. And so some believe that the Lord has already returned. We had a, a good brother in Christ who believes that. Uh, you can listen to a previous episode where we talked about, talked about that. But the point is, even when Christians have tried to codify, like the Apostles' Creed, even during that time, there was all this division. And even, even so, so I believe it was done with the best of intention. If we could just kind of codify some beliefs, maybe everybody would get along. But as we're going to see, that's not how Christianity is. The New Testament isn't uh, eight or nine codified beliefs that the Bible says just believe these these eight or nine things because even then people are going to disagree. So the conclusion is there's a problem and this does not work. Even if you disagree with what we're going to propose is what we believe is the solution. And I don't even call it a solution. It's a different framework because a solution implies there's a problem. And I don't even believe in the, the framework that this has created because I have a different framework. But if you believe in this framework, there is a problem. And either you have to find a solution or you have to change frameworks. There are no solutions. I can promise you that. So you have to change your framework in the way that you view Christian unity. Otherwise, you're just going to continue to either live in a in a church that's delusional where everybody thinks everybody agrees on absolutely everything, but they really don't. Or you're going to just live in ignorance instead of, and I'm not saying that to be ugly. I'm just saying that that, that would be your only choices because if you're honest and you look at the reality, the reality is no two Christians agree on absolutely every single issue. For another reason, two Christians haven't studied every single issue. Because even if you agree with somebody on five or six issues, there's going to be more things. The more you study, you're going to say, oh, I didn't even know that was in the Bible, or I didn't even know that was a belief. And culture changes things where we have to make new 
new beliefs or we have to create things to say, okay, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say you can't look up pornography. That's because, well, pornography on the internet, because I guess pornography did exist, but the Bible doesn't say you can't look up pornography on the internet. That's right. Bible doesn't say that. So I guess it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if the Bible was a list, if the Bible was a list, then, you know, we may, we may have to be saying the Bible doesn't say you can't have sex with a, with a, a virtual, you know, uh, Reality or whatever. Yeah. yeah, and why? Because that's not so. This is this stuff's constantly changing. the The whole idea, in my mind, this this right here blows that foundation to shreds. I mean, it absolutely does. And there's very few things I speak this confidently about, and, and because I'm I'm careful and I'm respectful. But this is one thing. Even while I'm respectful, this is absolutely ludicrous to believe that you can get all Christians or even two Christians or three or four to see every single thing alike. It's, it's absolutely absurd, but Hey, I believed it for many years and that's why we're doing this podcast to help people deconstruct that. Absolutely. And that's really what this episode was about as we get it wrapped up is deconstructing the idea that unity Scriptural unity, the scriptural concept of unity is doctrinal uniformity and being uniform across the board that everyone should share the exact same beliefs on a plethora or whatever those doctrinal positions are. We've established that that's not the case. And part two of this podcast that will air next time, we will be discussing what we reconstruct in its place. Because in you and I were talking about this before we went live, but deconstruction it can lead you to a better place and a better understanding, a more nuanced and generous and gracious approach to scripture. But unless there's something rebuilt in its place, it can ultimately lead a lot of people. And it did me for a little while away from the Lord completely. And that's, and that's not what we want. So we don't want to just deconstruct everything. We, I think we've done a good job deconstructing the idea of unity and uniformity tonight in this podcast, but we want something productive in its place. We want to reconstruct something in its place that is scriptural, that honors God, that honors the genres of the different books of the Bible, that, that takes those things into account and ultimately, above all else, takes the character of Jesus into account that takes God and his will and what the Bible reveals about God and his will and what he desires for his people into account as well. And that's what we're going to be getting into in the next episode. Um, before we leave, though, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I, I just hope that this is something that uh, <clears throat> people really think about because this this can be the beginning of freedom for a lot of people if, if they start going down this path and, and really allowing themselves to be curious and, and start having a, a better sense of critical thinking and, and allowing themselves to ask these questions and realize that, hey, you can actually have your own faith. You don't have to piggyback off somebody else just because you've been going to the same church every year and you've been taught the same things. You, you can actually have your own faith. And uh, it's it's a freeing thing when that when that happens. Absolutely. Well, brother, this was a good conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, to all of our listeners, we want to thank you. We always want to extend our our thanks and our our happiness that you're willing to listen to Kevin and I ramble about theological concepts and talk about the Bible and church and and God and serving Him and learning more about Him. We thank you guys for your patience. Uh, share this podcast with your friends. Uh, share it with your neighbors. Uh, post about it on social media. Share it on social media. We're on Facebook. Follow us there. Give us that five-star review. Our audience is growing every week. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Slowly but surely, 
And it's, it's really humbling to see and to hear from all of you and to see the effect that these discussions have been able to have on people's lives and how it's been able to enhance people's faith and how it's been able to bring peace to others. That's why Kevin and I do this. We enjoy it and we appreciate it so much. If you have any questions, if you have any comments or concerns, any topic ideas, guests that you think would be a good fit for our podcast that we could have on and things to discuss, drop us a line at our email. It's in the show notes below. Thank you all so much. God bless, and we'll see you next time.